Last week, we tried to talk to you about the subject of faith. Faith is a huge subject and very easy to go to a, a month of Sundays and still not cover everything. We, uh, we made some statements last week, and I felt like I raised more questions than I gave you answers. But that's okay for you to w- wrestle with those for about a week. Lord willing, today I'll try to answer some of those questions. A few of the observations we made is faith is something you inherit. It's not something you earn. Faith is uh, something that evidences salvation. It does not cause salvation. Faith is something you grow. It's not something you conceive. And faith is something you exercise. It's not something you manufacture. With that being said, what we did is we looked at uh, faith and we tried to get around and look at some of the automatic pilots we go into because of the way that word is thrown around very, very loosely. I'm going to try to tighten up some definitions and give you some answers today. But basically what we're going to do is we're going to concentrate on the subject that faith is a fruit of the Spirit. It does not invite the Spirit. A tree has an apple. An apple doesn't say, I think I want to create this tree and join myself to it. That's the way that works. Okay. And also what I'd like to go back to is the passage we used to introduce last week is the disciples ask God, Please increase our faith. How does that exactly happen? Where does that fit into the scheme of salvation? Okay, so last week we went into that. Let's read. Now, I want to propose something to you. And this is something you probably have not considered before. I'm going to say it in a way, it's probably a way that you haven't heard it before. I am trying to be as absolutely transparent as I can, as I present this to you, go back into the Bible and see if it's not so. Okay, with that being said, I'm going to propose two faith types. Okay? You know, like for instance, in the Trinity, in the Godhead, there are three persons. They're all different people. They all have one purpose and they unite. I'm going to present faith in a similar vein with there's two faith types. Okay? Let me give you one. One is the passage we just read, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against there, there's no such law. When a child of God is born, an operation is performed during, spiritually born, During regeneration, that heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is put in. And on that heart of flesh is written God's law and an affinity towards God and a faith in God. Very primitive, very uninformed, but there's still something there. Okay, and I'll use scripture to prove it. And then on the other hand, when we go to Jude 3 and 4... Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you the common salvation, it was needful me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. There is a second faith that comes through the gospel, through preaching, through edification, through reading your Bible. Notice what it says after this. The second faith here is as we contend for that faith, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. There is no one that can ruin your regeneration. 
It is absolutely impossible. But there is someone that can ruin your faith here as you stand and you live and breathe. Faith, and I might call it faith type number one, that's the God-given one that's uh, put in in regeneration. And the second one is the one that we go forward for the rest of our lives. Got it? Okay. I'm just presenting that to you right now. Now I'm going to try to prove that I think that was, was the case. And I think once we understand that, we're going to understand that there's some passages that are very difficult, very hard. But once we have this understanding in mind, I think it'll explain a lot of things. Okay, so let's go. Okay, number one, two faith types, I think better explains Romans 2, 13 through 15. Look at this one. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which not, have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Here is some Gentiles that never heard a preacher, that don't know who Jesus are, and here comes Paul, and he stumbles on these Gentiles, and you know what? They're doing some godly things. And the things they're doing are written on their heart. How did they get there? God performed a regeneration operation on them, and by nature they're doing those things. Now, C.S. Lewis would say, God does that to every single man. Well, there's a problem with that. The problem with this is everyone God wrote it on there, the Bible says right here that they're justified. So if he wrote it on everybody's hand, on heart, everybody is justified and heaven bound, and we don't believe that. Do you understand? But every elect child of God who's been regenerated that was written on there is justified, and they are heaven bound. Okay? Let's go to another one. Romans 1.17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Hmm, that's kind of a double talk, isn't it? Well, not if you understand there's two faith types. The faith type that God wrote on your heart is the one that grasps the faith that is being preached to you from the gospel or when you read it. If you do not have that first faith type, the second one's going to be water off a duck's back. Amen? So this is the faith unto faith. As it is written, the just bought, walk by faith, or live by faith, and that's that second type. We live according to our faith. But we will not have that faith unless the first faith type is present. From faith to faith. Now, there are some that will interpret it as the faith of the preacher to the faith of the believer, and I said, that doesn't fit. That does not fit. Okay, let's go to a third one. I'm going to rock some of your boats with this one. Ephesians 2, 8, and 10, 8 through 10. <clears throat> For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. A lot of folks want to say that's Jesus' faith. And for a while I believed that. Matter of fact, at lunch yesterday I was having it, and she says, what do you my wife says, what are you preaching on? And I told her, and I says, well, that's Jesus' faith. Well, no, I don't think that fits. I think that's faith number one. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk therein. I think he's ordaining the good works, not the people, in this particular passage. And when we walk in those good works, that's faith number two. And I think that's what it's talking about. Okay, prove it. 
prove it. All right. <clears throat> Let me tell you where I'm different. When I see a doctrine, when, when, when I see a doctrine, it doesn't matter what it's on. I want every single person in the Bible to fit that doctrine. If you have a doctrine that says you got to be baptized to be saved, I go, what about the Old Testament? What about the thief on the cross? Well, that's an exception. No. There's one God, one faith, one salvation, and everybody fits. I don't like band-aids. I don't like purgatory. I don't like age of accountability. Those are bad dates to fix bad doctrine. I don't like those. Give me one doctrine that fits everybody. If it's an Asa, a Jehu, a Hezekiah, a Solomon, a King Saul, those are, sorry, those are anomalies to most doctrine. All right, so what we're talking about here is a man called Abraham. I chose Abraham's life because according to Scripture, he's one of the most faithful men that God talks about recorded in Scripture. Okay? And what I did is I read his life from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25, and I recorded 16 significant events. One of the reasons why I picked him is his faith is talked about in Romans 4. His faith is talked about in Galatians, and he's got many entries in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. He's a very faithful man. But when I look at his life and his actions, and I look at his faith, you know what? His life would make a good roller coaster ride. He's up and down and up and down. Okay? Let me show you a few things I looked at. In chapter 12 and verse 5, these are all references from Genesis. <clears throat> God tapped him on the shoulder and he says, I want you to leave. I want you to go somewhere. I want you to leave mom and dad. But I'm not going to tell you where. And you know what? He did. I think that's pretty good faith. I give that one a thumbs up. But then he gets to Egypt and he gets afraid and he tells that whopper, she's my sister, lie, puts his wife at risk to save his own hide. Okay? Young man comes to me, says, I want your daughter in marriage. And he says, I will tell a lie to save my own hide. I'm going to tell him to hit the road. That's not good faith. I say that's a thumb down. And that's about as low a faith as you can have. And if I can go further down than the horizontal axis, I'm going to put that on the chart way down below. Okay? And then we go on, and then he takes off, and he goes to a place, and he's having trouble with Lot, his nephew. And they have a decision to make because their herdsmen are fighting with one another. And, 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 and what happened was is Abraham says, listen, he says, let's split up. He says, Lot, you can go. You want this way? I'll go this way. You go this way? I'll go this way. You pick. You choose. I'll, you know what? That's a pretty faithful act. And then we go down, and <coughs> Lot gets uh, kidnapped. And all this stuff gets taken by some big armies. And Abraham goes and he gets about a 300 soldiers. And he takes off, look at, he split after these armies to save his nephew. I call that pretty strong faith. Matter of fact, that's way up there. Pretty brave, courageous thing to do. And then I keep on going. And then they win. And the king of Sodom says, you know what? You can have all the spoils of war. And he says, I don't want a nickel from y'all. And then we go to 15.6, and he was told about his heritage from God, and he believed it. This is all what's the faith that's being quoted in uh, Romans 4.4 4 and Galatians. Pretty strong faith here. But then in chapter 16, verse 2, 
Sarah, his wife, gets a little antsy. God promised me a baby. Getting pretty old, don't have a baby. I know. I'm going to give my husband a concubine. And Abraham said, okay. Y'all, that wasn't very strong faith. It wasn't faith in the strong of, of the promise of God. It wasn't faith in the design God had for the marriage. It was not strong faith. Okay? So he gets a thumb down on that one. Chapter 17, 17, he's told he's going to have a child. He had laughs because of his old age. Okay? Chapter 17, verse 24, he submitted to circumcision at 99 years old. Not only that, he made his whole family do it. I think that's a thumbs up. In chapter 18, 19, he says, I, God speaking of Abraham, he says, I know him. He will keep my commandments, and not only will he keep my commandments, he'll make his whole, child, his whole family, his household keep my commandments. I think that's pretty thumbs up faith, right? And then they go on, and, and, and God says he's going to level Sodom, and, God, and Abraham goes to him, and he starts praying for him, and he intercedes. I think that's pretty strong faith, too. But then in chapter 20 and verse 2, you know what? He pulls that dumb move again, and he did that she's my sister lie to save his own hide. He's going way back down to the bottom. Yes. And then I go forward, and he's offered up Isaac, and I go, he's way to this mountaintop. I think that's pretty strong faith, right? And then he secured a wife for his his son, Isaac, a fellow believer. Not, not a Gentile, not a pagan, not a heathen. He got one from the own, and, and he secured it, went to great length, expense. I think that's a pretty faithful act. But this is right at the end of life, chapter 25 and verse 6. Sarah dies, and you know what he does? He gets a harem of concubines, and he has a slew of children. My friends, I think that's way down there. I don't care who you go to. Solomon, David, that was their downfall. They had many wives, many children. It was Gideon. Gideon made a mess of things. He had 70 sons by a whole slew of wives. You cannot tell me that Abraham was the father in Genesis 18, 19 with that many kids, with that many mothers. And here he is, the patriarch, setting that pattern for the whole nation. My friends, he ended his life on a low point. And I shared, why, why are you picking on Abraham? And I'm saying because he's in the hall of faith. And he's just a regular old dude like me. With a life full of ups and downs. And if you want to know, just ask my wife. I'm just like him. Now, now we think, okay. But, but he's trending upwards. No, he wasn't trending upwards. That second she's my sister, that was pretty late. I'm a mess and I do it all the time. So I look at his life, and you know me, the ex-math, I charted it. I charted it. This is what it looks like. Here's Abraham's life. Wouldn't that make a fun roller coaster ride? Yes? No, he said, well, 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 it's trending upwards. No, it's not. It's not trending upward. I'm talking about trends. Because I don't believe this doctrine either when it comes to salvation. Here's an illustration. As a pastor, from time to time, I I get involved with a family. Let's paint a scenario. 
let's pretend there's someone here <clears throat> that has a elderly parent that's health is really, really declining, okay? And the kids are, are with this particular parent and they're with them minute by minute, hour by hour, day after day after day after day, okay? Well, you know when someone is nearing the end of the life, their health just doesn't go as one smooth line that goes straight downwards. It's kind of zigzagged on a downward trend. They have maybe a strong day and then they'll have a couple of weekdays. And they might have a strong morning, but then a week afternoon, or maybe a week afternoon, but a strong. And, and the children that are with their parents that are dying are so close and so focused and so myopic, they see, oh, it's a good afternoon. She's getting better. And here comes the preacher who doesn't visit, but maybe every three days. And you know what I see? I see a slow downward trend. I don't get confused by the hourly ups and downs. I see that trend. And I ask the question, and the highs are lower, and the lows are lower, and the health is trending downwards. Yes? Well, some people will say that's the way our faith is. And you know what? That's the way my faith is. Hopefully it trends up. But when I look at Abraham's life, there's no trending up here. Because this second faith is not what our eternal salvation is based on. You know what it's based on? It's based on the work of Jesus Christ. What is this faith based on? Your peace on earth, your fellowship with him, your enjoyment of the kingdom of heaven. That's what that is. So this is what I did. Okay, here's faith type number one. There it is. The, God, the, the faith that God plants in you at regeneration doesn't go up, it doesn't go down, it's constant. But the faith that we exercise, there's Abraham's roller coaster ride. And when God makes that judgment, it's not based on the second graph, it's based on the first graph. Praise the Lord, amen? That's what it is. I'm so thankful. Now, you know, Brother Dahl, I've never heard of this preached this way. Well, I've heard primitive Baptists preached talking about the difference between relationship and fellowship. That's exactly what this is. Do you understand? Deborah and I are married. But from week to week, we kind of go up, up and down, right? Mostly it's my knuckleheadedness, but we go up and down. Same thing with my biological children. That's probably even a better example because they are my children. But as time goes by, up and down, right? And that's the way God is with his adopted children. With his adopted children, we always have the relationship. But the fellowship kind of comes and goes in, 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 in degree. Amen? So when we read and Jesus Christ is talking to his disciples and he's saying, increase our faith, he's talking about the second kind of faith. Type faith two, if I may call it that. All right, let's keep on going. Okay. Now, there's a couple things <clears throat> I want to talk about regarding faith. And one of the things is, is God. God, I've, I've heard statements made that God has faith. And to that I answer kind of, sort of. Amen. Okay? Thank you. Amen. Now, in Hebrews 11 and verse 1, 
the Bible says, faith is the evidence of, unseen, of things unseen. You know what? God has seen everything. He sees everything. So in essence, he can't have that kind of faith because he knows it all. But there's two ways God is very faithful. I looked up the word faithful this week, and it shows up like 16 or 18 times. And what happens is, is when I look up those 16 or 18 times, God's faithfulness fell into two categories. Number one, he kept every promise he ever made. And the second thing is, everything that came out of his mouth was always true. And really those two things are like kissing cousins, aren't they? They're pretty close to being the same thing. Let's, let's see. First reference, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Showing that he keeps his promises. <clears throat> Knowing therefore that the, God, that the Lord thy God, he is the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him, and keepeth his commandments to thousands of generations. Okay? So when God says, draw nigh unto me and I'll draw nigh unto you, that's a promise but I'm not going to draw to him. So he says, okay, you, you can live life back there for a little while. Right? That's his promise. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. That's God. So part of God being faithful is every promise he's ever made, you can take to the bank, it'll, it'll come to pass. Now, I want to show you this, okay? In Matthew 7, 25, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is talking about the storms coming I want, I, I, because people get confused. Here's the statement in verse 25. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not and it was founded upon a rock. Now, a lot of times we think God has promised no storms. That's not what the verse says. The verse says, if you are founded on Jesus Christ, and a storm comes, you're not going to be blown over. That's what the promise is. God never promised no wind, no rain. Amen? Okay, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. <clears throat> there hath no temptation taken you, but such is common unto man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. But with will, with that temptation, also maketh a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Oh, this temptation is just more than I can stand. You know what I say? That's a lie. Because God promised. He didn't say, I will never give you a temptation. He said, I will never give you a temptation without an out. He says, the ones that come through, there's a buffer around you. And if one gets through that buffer, you've got a way out. That's what his promise is. Amen? All right, here's one more. Revelations 21.4. And I paraphrase this. And God shall wipe away all tears from your eyes, and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, for former things are passed away. You know what? That's a promise. But when's that promise for? Not here. Where's that promise? Glory. Amen? So what happens is, have you ever run across the person that maybe something really, really bad happened to them when they were younger. And it's really bad. And what they've concluded in their mind, if God is a good God, and he allowed this bad thing, I don't trust that kind of faithful God. You know what the problem is? 
God never promised bad things wouldn't happen. He promised he would be with you when the bad things happen so you can get through, but he never promised bad things. When we hold him to our constraint that a bad thing will never happen, we are holding to something he never committed to. He is a faithful God. He's not faithful to the thing you put onto him, but none of us are, are we? We're faithful to the things we commit to. That's what God did. So one thing, God is faithful, and he's faithful to keep his promises, not the constraints you put on him. Okay, number two, he tells the truth. He speaks only the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. 2 Timothy 2.13, if ye believe not, yet he abideth faithful and cannot deny himself. In other words, he'll never say one thing and do another. He is true, he's perfect, he's pure. Revelations 21.5, and he sat upon the throne. Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. What he says is, are faithful. They come to pass. A couple more, Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That's how true his words are. In Revelations 22.6, and he said unto me, these are faithful sayings and true. And the Lord God of holy prophets sent his angels to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. God's words always come true. He's faithful that way. And then finally, Psalm 119.86, all thy commandments are faithful. This is where we as people get ignorantly misinformed. He didn't say all my commandments are fun. No, Amen. He says, all my commandments are faithful. You know what? They're best for you long-term, short-term. They're best for you physically, mentally, and spiritually. They're the best for you, and they're best for everyone around you and everybody that watches you. Way beyond your comprehension. So let's, let's stop this. I want to take a little tangent. I want to talk about blind faith. What's blind faith? In, in Hebrews 11 and verse 8, this is the occasion we just talked about a little while ago. <coughs> Abraham was told to go to a country he did not know where. He says, leave mom and dad, go to this place. God, where do you want me to go? I'm not going to tell you. And Abraham went. I'd call that blind faith. Amen? But, as a biological father, I've got to make a choice. There are times when I tell my children, do something, make your bed. Why, Dad? I'm just going to get it dirty the next day because I said so. That's blind faith. Amen? Or I could give them the explanation. Right? I said, well, it's a self-discipline and I want you to be practiced in a self-discipline because that act of self-discipline will parlay over to other acts of self-discipline and la-da-da-da-da, okay? So do I tell them or don't? Well, sometimes I don't always explain. Like Abraham was not told where he was going to go. I don't know if it was because he would be more focused in the destination than the journey. 
and God wanted him to look to God all the time and not be too far off in the future. I don't know why God was doing it. Maybe he was too immature in the face. It wasn't time. There are plenty of times where you say, do this. It's urgency or you're too young to understand, but I just, because I said so. But that's blind faith. But what happens if that hap- particular instant happens where dad gave me a command, I don't understand why, but he's done it a dozen times and every time he was right, it worked out. So the 13th time you say you do it, didn't give an explanation, and the child does it. Do you call that blind faith? I don't call that blind faith. I call that faith in the person that gave the command because he's 12 for 12. Does that make sense? Okay, that's one kind. But let's talk about giving the explanation. Giving the explanation is really good. And one of the reasons why I give an explanation is I was talking with my son about this. He does this because if you don't give the explanation, then you've got to say, do this command next week. And you've got to say, because I said so again. But if you give the explanation a week later, they don't know what to do it because they have the reason. That's one good reason. Well, the other reasons why is, is because I want to train them to be a father or head of a house one day. By giving them the explanation, they'll be prepared to be able to be the father or the head of the household. There's plenty of reasons to give the explanation. But there are times where it's not convenient. Amen? And sometimes that's with God. He doesn't do it because there's urgency. Usually he does it because you're too, too immature to understand and you'll figure that out in about five years. Amen? Okay. So... I wanted to talk about blind faith. And it can be blind, but based on my life and what I know God's commandment does and how they're good long-term, short-term, physically, spiritually, mentally, socially, practically, I'm going with it even though I don't understand the why. I don't call it blind because he's done so good in the past. He's always been right. Strengths, saints ought to strive for faithfulness. Okay, let me give you a couple examples. <clears throat> For Samuel 2.35, a faithful priest is that which is in God's heart and mind. <sighs> that's pretty hard, isn't it? But that's what a faithful priest does. A faithful man, 1 Samuel 22.14, who is so faithful as David, he goeth at thy bidding and honorable. This is talking about David in his submission to King Saul. Saul was questioning his faithfulness. There was a priest there talking to King Saul. He says, David's good. Everything he commanded, he did it, and he did it in an honorable way. That's a good definition of faithfulness. One more, 1 Corinthians 4, 17, Ephesians 6, 21, and Colossians 1, 7, Timotheus, Tychicus, and Epaphras. They were faithful ministers. What made them a faithful minister? They were good stewards over God's word. They protected it. They held it up high. They went forward. Okay? The difference between believe in God and believe God. Satan believes in God. Satan believes God exists. But I would never call Satan faithful. First of all, he doesn't obey God. He doesn't love God. He doesn't trust God. And somehow I think the finished work of Jesus Christ, even though God said, I still think he can do an end around and beat him in the end. 
I would not call Satan faithful. He believes in God, but he doesn't believe God. And friends, I think that describes your and I life on too many occasions. We believe in God, but we don't necessarily believe in God. I'm sorry, we believe in God, but we don't necessarily believe God. So this is what a faithful steward does. He's conscientious. He's reliable. This is what a faithful treasurer does. Nehemiah 13, 13. He's trustworthy. This is what a faithful brother does. He conceals the matter. He doesn't broadcast it. This is what a faithful witness does. He speaks the whole truth. He's honest. Proverbs 27, 6. This is what a faithful friend does. He corrects. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Amen? He's going to tell you the truth even if it hurts you. Hopefully he does it in love. Again, we can tell the truth, but we can do it without compassion, and the defenses go up, and it doesn't accomplish what we think we want it to accomplish. But the faithful man tells the truth, but does it in love. And Daniel was a faithful politician. Wouldn't you like to have a couple of those in Washington today? He gave no occasion. He had great integrity. That's what a faithful person does. You know, in a lot of ways, that's what a faithful saint is, all these things. Reliable, trustworthy, discreet, honest, sober, integrity. Let's read this passage, James 2. Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, thou hast faith, I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. You know what basically that's saying? You may believe in God. But if you believe God, you will have the works. If you believe God, you will do what he says. If you believe God, you will trust what he says. If you believe God, you will draw closer to him than you will the world. And that's why I think James is writing this. See, and I think the difference is, is there's these two faith types. There's this faith that's put on us when we're regenerated, and that's steady. But then there's this other faith that we exercise. Can't do it without the first, but we exercise. And when we exercise this, it'll be married to works. And the Bible says that second faith without the works is no faith at all. And, and you know, again, I've shared this before. Martin Luther was so confused by this passage. He wrote, Rip the book of James out of his Bible. That's apostasy. It can't be the word of God. But if you understand two faith types, you can say, oh, I see. I see. Let me go back. I, verse 18, yea, a man say, thou hast faith, I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, but the devils also believe and tremble. But they don't obey, they don't know love, do they? That's not faith. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? You want to tell me you've got that kind of faith and you disobey all God's laws? That's not faith. And God says, you draw nine to me, I'll draw nine to you. And all of a sudden you're in that lifestyle and all of a sudden bad things start happening and you go, why God, where's God? He didn't go anywhere. You're the one that went away. Amen? You're the one that the dip in the roller coaster. So, when I come to you, I talk about from faith 
to faith. Let me ask you a couple questions. Okay. Most Americans say they believe in God, but a very small fraction believe God. God's position on marriage, sodomy, and gender is homophobic and misogynist. Is that someone that believes in God or believes God? God's position on family, child training, and education is old-fashioned and oppressive. Is that someone that believes in God or believes God? God's position on abortion, euthanasia, and capital punishment is hypocritical. Is that someone that believes in God or someone that believes God? God did not really create the word in six days, preserve his word, or claim absolute truth. But you believe in God, but you don't believe God. I want to put forth a faith to my children that, first of all, gives them hope. It gives them hope in Christ's finished work, not in their works. I don't want to put that kind of burden on them. But at the same time, I want to put forth a faith that shows a life without God here in this world is absolute misery. And not only is it misery for them, it's misery for all those around them.